All right? Amen? All right. I got five holy people out here. All right. Let me, <laughs> let me pray before we turn to God's word. Father, indeed, we worship you. We worship you, O Lord. Now we wish to worship you in the hearing of your word. And we beg of you, speak to us. And O Lord, we beg of you, give us ears to hear. Let us hear what you say to your church. And let us believe it. And let us obey it. And let us be changed by it. Speak to us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you're visiting with us this morning, then you have sort of parachuted in to the middle of our series through the book of Colossians. Uh, We have been looking at this book, and we've titled this series, Our Treasures in Christ. And with each of the sermons that we have had in this series, we've been attempting to sort of think about part of the riches, the, the treasure that we have as Christians in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remember... Paul has written this letter to the church in Colossae, which was a a kind of crossroads, metropolitan city in the ancient world. Uh, He has never himself been to Colossae, according to chapter 2, verse 1. He's gotten a report from Epaphras, a, a fellow worker in the gospel, about how things are going there. And that report has had two parts. On the one hand, Epaphras has told them that the Colossians are, are firm in the faith and that they are a good ordered church. But on the other hand, apparently there are some teachers in Colossae who sort of, as you might expect in a cosmopolitan city, has began to sort of blend together Christianity with other religious ideas. There would have been Jewish persons in Colossae, there would have been pagan persons in Colossae, and there would have been this young Christian church there. And apparently there's some teachers who've come into Colossae and they're basically teaching something along the lines of, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but also in order to have a full life, there's some rules you need to follow. There are some dietary rules, some things you can eat and drink and some things you have to avoid. And there are also some religious observances, some holy days and Sabbaths and new moon festivals that you have to sort of keep in order to have this fullness of life. And Paul has been writing since chapter 2, addressing that particular error, addressing that particular concern. He's been trying to press upon the Colossians that Jesus plus anything is nothing. Add anything to Jesus, and you're not free, you're not full, you're enslaved, in fact, to a worldly philosophy. And you're living beneath your inheritance in Christ. He's been trying to help us understand that all we need is Christ. Now, this is important teaching. Because that kind of teaching that says that you have to have Jesus plus something, it never satisfies the soul. It aggravates the soul. We might call this do more religion. And the problem with do more religion is you can never do enough. And all of your effort to be more radical and all of your effort to be more zealous and all of your effort to be more holy or whatever it is. And and all these things that we add atop of Christ, the more we place atop of Christ, the less satisfied, the less secure we feel. Now, this is an important issue to sort of put our fingers on, as as the book of Colossians does, because in our day, there's another issue we have to put our finger on, and and that's another response to this question of how we follow Jesus and how we find fullness in Jesus. We might call that just-believe religion. Just-believe religion. In our day, there's been this great sort of emphasis on the gospel, and we live in a day of gospel-centered everything, but I got to tell you, beloved, some of it doesn't feel very gospel-centered to me. You can't answer every problem of the Christian life with just believe more. Just preach the gospel to yourself. If you do that, sooner or later, you're going to find yourself wondering if you're making it all up. If you're simply trying to convince yourself of things that you don't actually experience. We live between those two poles of do more religion and just believe religion. And that's because we live between two other poles 
of life where we first came to Christ and were rescued from our sins and made to be new creatures and life that's not quite gotten here finally and fully in the second coming of Christ. We're in this in-between. And in this great in-between, the real sort of task and challenge of the Christian life is to live with the fullness that Christ promises us in his word. And when we come to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, Paul is beginning now to shift away from rejecting that do more man-made religion. And he's beginning to help us in these four verses to understand how we get that sort of fullness in this in-between time. If you're taking notes this morning, Colossians 3 verses 1 to 4, uh, I want us to hang our thoughts on kind of three points here. Number one, to enjoy this fullness, colon, to enjoy this fullness that's in Christ, we want to focus on four great facts about the Christian life. We want to focus on four great facts about the Christian life. Number two, to enjoy this fullness in Christ, we want to practice now two critical disciplines in the Christian life. Two critical disciplines or actions in the Christian life. And number three, we want to do all of that anticipating one ultimate hope in the Christian life. One ultimate hope. And in these four verses, Paul will take us from our past tense, when we became Christians, address our present tense as we live as Christians in the great in-between, and he will direct our attention to the future tense when we see Christ and are finally with him. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Four great facts about your life if you are a Christian. Colossians must be one of the most, if not the most, Christ-centered books in all the Bible. I'm not sure there's another book of Scripture that gives us as high and wonderful a vision of Jesus Christ as the book of Colossians. In Colossians, Jesus stands not only above everything, but Jesus stands in the middle of everything. And that includes the middle, the center, the essence, the nucleus of our lives as Christians. So we find these four facts in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Let me give them to you. Number one, you have been raised with Christ. That's in verse 1. If you're a Christian, you have been raised with Christ. And that's true, number two, because you have died with Christ. Verse three, you have died with Christ. And not only have you died with Christ, but notice in verse three there, the second half, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden with Christ in God. And number four, verse four, finally, Christ is your life. You have died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. You are now hidden with Christ in God. And the sum of it all is Christ is your life. Beloved, life is not about us. We are not the stars of the show. We are not the point of it all. Especially if we are Christians. The most profound and central fact about us has to do with what Christ has done for us. We've died with Christ. When did that happen? We died with Christ when we turned to him in faith. He died in our place on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. The death he died was the death we owed. And when God in his grace caused us to repent of our sins and to trust in him spiritually, the death that Jesus died, we died with him. 
And not only did we die with Christ, we've been raised with Christ. And when did that happen? When three days later, Christ got up from the grave, pushing back the stone, taking off the grave clothes, and walked out in glory and might. We walked out with him. Because through faith in Christ, we have been spiritually united to Christ. So that the death he dies and the life he lives, we actually die and live with him. And not only that, but notice, we are hidden with Christ. That only makes sense since we have been joined with him in his death and his life. Our lives are hidden with him in God, which means at least three things. It means the Christian is a person forever united with Christ and God. (laughs) Nothing will separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. No one will pluck you out of God's hands. All these promises come flooding through the Bible right into our hearts about our inseparable union with God because God has joined us to himself and hidden us in himself. The Christian is a person forever united with Christ and God. When Jesus ascended to heaven, we ascended with him spiritually. When Christ was reunited with the Father, we spiritually, through faith in him, were reunited with God. You don't sit merely in this auditorium. You sit in glory with Christ, hidden in God. This means a second thing. The Christian life is not yet fully seen. We are hidden with Christ in God. John the Apostle says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, what we will be has not yet been has not yet appeared. There's a a transformation and a completion that is yet to be seen. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 19, that the entire creation waits with eager longing. What do they wait for? For the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation, all of heaven, really is sitting on the edge of its seat, waiting to see what we will finally be. At the revelation of the sons of God. Right now we are hidden from the world in God. And none but those who are in Christ, who are in God, even have a sense of who we really are. And this means a third thing, that we're hidden in Christ. It means that the Christian is spiritually safe and secure. The word hidden not only means veiled, that we can't see it, but it also implies safety, being kept from our enemies. You know what you do if you got a little piece of money around the house and you don't want anybody else to get it? What do you do with it? You hide it. You hide it. Well, why? Because in that hiddenness is safety. And this is what's happened with the Christian. We have been hidden with Christ in God. Here's how the psalmist and the Bible writers say it in other places, that God is our refuge, that God is our tower, that God is our bulwark. What? And the righteous run into him and they are what? Safe. He is our fortress and our shield and our deliverer. To be hidden with Christ in God is to be in the safest place imaginable. We're safe from Satan. He can't get into God, so he can't get to us. We're safe from our enemies. They may destroy the body, but they cannot destroy the soul. And God will raise that body again. We're safe from our sorrows. Not that we don't have sorrow, but what has Jesus promised us? He has promised us his joy, and he has told us the world can't take it away. All of our happiness, all of our hope, all that we treasure, it is safe in the, in the vault of God himself. Because we are hidden with Christ in God. We are amazing beings. And that just all culminates in this fourth fact, right? That Christ is our life. Christ is 
our life. Christ is everything. Christ is the one who has given us life. Christ is the one who renews our life. And because we have been joined together with Christ, it's Christ's life that works and flows through us. Paul is fond of this. He says it over and over in his letters. Philippians 1 verse 21. You know these words. To live is what? And to die is? Oh, you know the words of of Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been what? Crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who, but who, in, and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. These are not only Paul's words. These are our words as Christians. Consider what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If Christ is in you, beloved, You are alive with that life which really is life. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Why? Do you not realize this about yourselves? I, I love that. I love that way he puts it. It's almost as if God is begging us to recognize this. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And I like that. That unsettles some people. And it ought if you play in Christianity. But it assures us if we're Christians. Because it means that everyone who is a Christian has this reality. Christ is in them. It doesn't matter if you're a weak Christian. It doesn't matter if you're a struggling Christian. It doesn't matter if you're a great superhero Christian, if there is such a thing. It doesn't matter. If you are in Christ, Christ is in you. And Christ is your life. All that he is is true of you. Because all that he is is inside of you. And you are in him. When the Bible says here that Christ is our life, It means to teach us something permanent and real. Don't make the mistake of thinking that because something is spiritual is less real than what's physical. It's precisely the other way around, beloved, according to the Bible. What's physical is perishing and will be burned away. What is spiritual is eternal and will always last. The truest things about us are the spiritual things about us. And so when he says now, Christ is your life, that little word is is a a, a verb, and it's an indicative. It means he's telling us a fact. He's stating something not that will be or not that might be, but he's stating something that is. He is your life. And your life is in him. And his life is in you. This is what it is to be a Christian. To be so united with Christ. That in all honesty and all truth, Christ himself becomes your life. Reading a wonderful book that I commend to all of you called Union with Christ. The subtitle is The Way to Know and Enjoy God. Written by Rankin Wilborn, a, a pastor in L.A. And he's trying to illustrate union with Christ in this book. And he tells a story about a friend who worked as a mascot with Disney. I think it's a good illustration, so I'm going to share it with you along with his commentary. I have a friend who used to be Mickey Mouse. She was the person inside the costume at Disneyland. Reflecting on her time in Mickey, she said, growing up, listen to see if you identify, I thrived on behavior modification. I thought, if I'm good, I will be loved. If I'm bad, I will be rejected. I learned to wear a mask, not to show what was really going on. My core beliefs were that I was not worthy, accepted, or loved. So I would clamor and make up ways to sort of get the positive responses I wanted from people. When I put on Mickey's costume, I got that positive response times 100. 
And then he writes, she felt safe and loved, covered in Mickey's righteousness. But she also gained a new sense of what it means to be in Christ. She recalled praying, Lord, is this what it's like to have masses of people run towards you with joy, excitement, and eagerness? And then Wilborn writes this. This is another way to picture what it means for you to be in Christ. You are completely safe, hidden in him. He represents you before the Father. He covers you, your sin, your shame, your weakness. But he covers you in a very real way, not as a temporary make-believe. Being in Mickey or any other mask we hide behind is to masquerade in a false identity. But being in Christ is to discover our true God-given identity. You are alive in him, moving with him through this world, clothed in all his benefits and blessings. You are in Christ. You have put him on as an identity that can never be removed. And all the Father sees when he looks at you is Christ his Son. That's you, Christian. It's not a costume or suit. It's not make-believe. It is full-fledged, spiritual, permanent reality. These are the four great facts of the Christian life. You have died. You have been raised with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is your life. And in one sense, this is the true believe more aspect of Christianity. There's more to believe than simply Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected. There's things to believe about what that means for us about how we have been joined with him forever. These are the articles of faith that we have to hold on to if we would live well in that gap between what we used to be apart from Christ and what we will be when Christ returns. And these facts must undergird, they must be the foundation for everything we think about ourselves and everything we do. So let me ask you a question. Is this how you think of yourself from day to day? Dead with Christ raised with Christ, hidden in Christ. Christ is your life. Or are you wearing some other mask, some other identity to try to find significance or to to try and manage life between what you used to be and what you will be? Are you growing tired of manufacturing a persona, an image, an identity? then stop it and put on Christ. He is your life. Do you know this about yourself? That you are united with Christ so fully that he is your life. Enjoy that. Rest in that. Delight in that. That brings us then to the applications that Paul gives us in this text. Our second point two critical disciplines then for living in this in-between. These four facts are the, are the foundation now of, of our lives, our self-understanding, and now Paul's going to tell us what to do with that understanding, and he tells us we're going to do two things, two related things. Notice here in verse 1, seek those things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And you see a very similar statement again in verse 2, set your mind on things above not on things that are on earth. Seek those things above. Set your mind on things above. Seek and set. So first, we must seek those things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In other words, beloved, we must live like we're looking for something. You ever seen a man looking for something or a woman looking for something? As soon as you see him, you'd be like, what you looking for? It's obvious, isn't it? Just the way they're walking and the way they're looking, it's obvious that they're on the search for something. So you ain't got to ask them what you're doing. You're just like, what you looking for? Let me help you, right? The Christian life is meant to have that kind of intentionality, that kind of focus, that kind of seeking and searching and striving and digging and excavating and, and tilling the ground. Because we are in search of Christ. We are seekers of him and his glory. Now, just as an aside... I've never quite liked the use of the term seeker. 
for people who are not yet Christians. They may be asking spiritual questions and things of that sort, and that's wonderful. We don't want to discourage that, but for the most part, the Bible used seeker of two persons. It used seeker of God when he's seeking his people. And it uses seeker of God's people when they are seeking him. So we think of a passage like Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. It seems as soon as God calls us to himself, he says, come looking for more of me. Seek me while I may be found. Turn to me. And so the Christian life is a life of, of seeking. And we're not to be confused with those who don't yet know Christ. For Paul says in Romans chapter 3, there's none who seek after God. No, not one. So if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, don't be careful with this, but I, I, I want to say it. I hope, you, I hope I can say it well. If you're here asking questions about Jesus, there's a sense in which you're seeking Jesus. But if your questions are genuine, Jesus is seeking you. He has began to hook you and to draw you and to allure you to the truth. Now I say that in order to say this. Don't be duped into thinking that you're the one in control and you can can trust your own thoughts. Because if you turn that off because you get sort of fascinated with some other idea, it will be to your destruction. What you must do is yield to that drawing. What you must do is follow those questions to their answers. And what you must do is understand that God is speaking to you. Do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. Do not turn away to your own thoughts. You have been sought after. Which is another way of saying you are being loved. Don't turn from love for the idols of your own thought and the illusion of self-control. Submit to God. Trust in Him. And join us on this quest. Because Christian, this is, this is our life. The Bible calls us to, to seek after those things above. Now, we need another word of clarification here. When Paul says, seek those things that are above, he is not talking about the bricks, the gold of heaven. He's not talking about the crowns of heaven. Notice how he goes on to sort of clarify where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The thing that we are principally seeking when we seek those things above is Christ himself. He is the treasure. He is the pearl of great price. He is the reward of heaven. He is the one we desire. You know, it's possible to have a worldly view of heaven. It is. I hear it all the time. People say stuff like, I can't wait to get to heaven. Because when I see Moses, I'm going to ask him. <laughs> I can't. Moses is going to be like, man, leave me alone. I'm trying to talk to Jesus. <laughs> Maybe I, I can't wait to get to heaven because then I'm going to see all my loved ones and so on and so forth. Beloved, what makes heaven heaven is Jesus. John Piper years ago asked a question that has always struck me as fitting. He said, would you be happy to go to heaven? To have all your family there. To have all of your diseases cured to have the crowns of righteousness and to join the angelic train. Would you be happy to go to heaven and have all of that if Christ was not there? That's how you know whether or not you're seeking Christ or seeking a better earth. The point of heaven is being with Jesus. Seeking the things above is seeking Christ. And beloved, the moment we see him, all the things of earth will grow strangely dim, as the hymn writer says. Can you imagine? He's sitting at the right hand of God. That's the place of honor in heaven. You may remember from the Gospels that James and John sent their mama to ask Jesus if they could have this seat. To sit at his right hand, his left hand, in the kingdom. Jesus said, they ain't mine to give. And you know what? The father gives it to his unique son to sit at his right hand, to receive the honor and glory and majesty of all of heaven. And when we see him, beloved, the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, 
the bright and morning star, the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon, the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, the one whose name is faithful and true, the one who is himself clothed in the robes of righteousness, whose face beams with the radiance of glory. When we see him, we'll be satisfied and nothing else will distract us. That's what we're seeking now. And that's what we will see then. All the beauties of the cosmos are summed up in his face. And you will behold that glory. And it's ours to seek it now. But now we have to do something else to go along with that. We must set our minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. That's verse 2. Verse 2 kind of expands the thought of verse 1 in two ways. First, the word set our minds on translate a word that means continue to think about. Keep on thinking about things above, namely Christ. So verse 1 said to seek, that has to do with action. Verse 2 says to think about, that has to do with our thoughts, our patterns of thinking, our mental framework. In order to seek the things above, we must think about the things above. You guys know this cliche, don't you? Out of sight, out of mind. Right? But see, Christianity here reverses that. And and it tells us plainly that if it's in our mind, it will be in our sight. If we think about it and focus on it, we will be able to set then our heart and our minds to seeking it out. We must be heavenly minded. And we can be heavenly minded because Christ has what? He's, we have died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. Our lives are hidden in Christ. Christ is our life. If that's true, then God has freed us in Christ to focus our thoughts on him. The psalmist says in Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Then he tells us what the benefit of that is. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. You meet a person who has set God before him and focused himself on God. You meet a man or a woman who cannot be shaken by anything in this life. Because they have the promise of a better life, another country, a new city whose foundation isn't built by men, but by God. Well, this is how Paul Paul tells us this is his life too. So if you want to, keep your finger in Colossians and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, where Paul tells us so much about his own spiritual life and his own outlook. You know those words where he says basically he counts everything as lost compared to the knowledge of Christ, his Savior. And he tells us that he wants more than anything to share in the fellowship of his suffering and to share in the power of his resurrection. That's his goal. Then in Philippians 3, chapter 12, he writes these words. Excuse me, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. You see what Paul is saying there? He lives in the in-between. He ain't got there yet. He's still pressing toward it. Then he says this. This is his strategy. But one thing I do, one thing about other things, forgetting what lies behind, the life of of sin, the life of Phariseeism, the life of persecuting the church, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I set this goal before me. I I focus on Christ and I seek this prize. That's how he lives. Seeking what's above. Setting his mind on things above. And notice what he says in verse 15, the first part of verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Seeking things above and setting our minds on things above is at the heart of Christian maturity. We're not to think that we are mature Christians if we live seeking and setting our minds on things on earth. Well, maturity at the heart of it is this break from the focus of things on earth and this consuming focus 
on the things above, on Christ and the prize that he calls us to. Verse 2 expands, I think, in a different way as well. Verse 2 clarifies in Colossians 3, clarifies for us that the things above are contrary to the things on the earth. Beloved, you can't have it both. You can't have God and mammon. You'll serve one and hate the other. It's no different in when it comes to what we're focusing on. We can't easily be focused on Christ and focused on the things below. One will win. One will carry the day. Above refers to the things in heaven where Christ is. Earth represents here the, the world and all of its corruption and sin. The things of earth also, going back to Colossians chapter 2, refer to those man-made religious practices, those things that are according to the elemental spirits of the world. So that man-made religion of self-effort, that ain't heavenly, that's earthly. Paul is calling us up above that. And you remember what he says in Colossians 2, 22 and 23? He said, you know, you can go on about all that asceticism and man-made religion. He says it, it has an appearance of wisdom, but verse 23 It has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is where verses 1 and 4 get really critical. Because it's this heavenly mindedness that has the power to stop the indulgence of the flesh. What do you struggle with that you and I recognize in our struggles is earthly, is sinful, is beneath our inheritance in Christ? that struggle won't finally be overcome with more rules and religiosity. That struggle will be overcome as we squeeze the very thought of it out of our minds and squeeze in the thought of Christ and life with Him. It's the power of a superior pleasure to push out lesser pleasures. It's the power of a greater beauty to make all the lesser beauties fade It isn't that sin isn't pleasurable. It's that the pleasure of sin is fleeting. And not only is it fleeting, it puts you in opposition to God. And here Christ offers to us himself. And he offers to us not a fleeting pleasure, but a permanent pleasure. One that pleases God. And one that fills us with satisfaction. Now, man-made religion won't put your flesh to death. But thoughts of having died with Christ and being raised with him and being hidden in him and he being our life, well, that has a way of taking your mind off the very things that would destroy you and putting your mind on the thing that gives you and I life. So how do we apply this? Two things. Number one, hate distractions. Develop a holy hatred for distractions. Become familiar with what distracts us from Christ. Make your list. Jot it down. Think it through. What is it when I should be or desire that the Spirit speaks to me to give myself to Christ? What is that thing that comes up that distracts me from it? That makes me put it off? That makes me delay it? Television, radio and music, hanging with the boys, hanging with the girls, even family, all kinds of even good things, which are lesser things, can be distractions from the best thing, which is Christ. And the aim is to bend our desire away from the distractions and to fulfill our desires with the things that actually keep us focused on Christ. Now, there are two parts to that. It is both turning from the distraction and filling that space with Christ. You won't get there if you simply turn from the distraction because you'll turn and notice another distraction. Ooh. (laughs) Anybody had that experience? I ain't going to watch TV right now. I'm going to read my Bible, go upstairs. Oh, baby, what you cooking? (laughs) (laughs) Smell good in here. 30 minutes later, five pounds more. You know, I still ain't met with Jesus, right? (laughs) So you have to turn from the distraction and actually feel the heart and feel the mind with Christ. 
to positively put it in. Feed upon God's Word. Listen to God's Word preached in sermons and, and gather with God's people and pray together with God's people and have a little talk with Jesus and sing hymns and choruses. Blast that favorite jam you like. But give yourself fully to the Lord. Here's the second thing. We, 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 we have to be careful how we understand heavenly mindedness. You've heard another cliche. Don't be so what? Heavenly minded that you're no what? I hate that saying. People who say that seem to think that too much focus on heaven makes you useless on earth. That's crazy. The truth is we're only of any earthly good when we are in fact heavenly minded. Think Think of it this way. If we as Christians are earthly minded, we simply think and do the same things everybody else is doing. What good is that? We add to the craziness. We add to the chaos. We add to the sinfulness. We add to the dysfunction. We offer the world nothing different from what they already have. And beloved, just this, this is extra. This is why if you're trying to be cool and a Christian, you're actually working against your own purposes. You, you can't out-cool the world. And this is why every time we try to be cool, we look cheesy to the world. They're like, oh, I don't know, you know, that corny music, that, you know. No, you might as well go ahead and be a Christian. You might as well go ahead and be a Christian and be different so that you have something to offer the world. And that comes from being heavenly minded. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to the world any longer, but be what? Transform. How? By the renewing of your mind. Yeah, if we become like the world, we, we're like salt that's lost its saltiness and flavor. We're good for nothing but to be trampled. Isn't that what the Lord Jesus says? It's precisely by being otherworldly that we inject something different into this world and prove ourselves useful. But now there's another false idea about being heavenly minded. It's close to the first. And that is the idea that if we are heavenly minded, then we are basically escapists. We check out of reality. We, we're so holy that we, all we do is sit in a room and chant all day, right? And, and we got no contact with, with people. And, and uh, all we do is fast and starve ourselves. But, but beloved, y'all know I ain't starving myself. But <laughs> True heavenly mindedness is not escapism. It is not running away from the world as it really is. It's heavenly mindedness that allows you to see the world the way it really is. And as we've been saying, be useful to the world. The more we are drawn into Christ and his values and ways of being, the more we engage in life on earth. The difference is we have now the mind of Christ as we do it. I mean, look at Colossians. Look at how, how engaged Paul then goes on to instruct these people to be with life. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That's nothing that feels so real to people than their intimate wants and desires. And heavenly mindedness comes right down into that and reorganizes it. Or look down in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. In other words, live like Christ in the world. And all of those things, all of those virtues, kindness, humility, patience, meekness, all of those things that are displayed in contact with other people. No, this is a very real here and now kind of life. But it is the invasion of heaven into this world. Or, Or look with me in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands. Somebody said, uh-oh. Wives, submit to your husbands as it's fitting in the Lord. Husbands, yes, you brothers, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Comes right down into the family, doesn't it? We want heavenly-minded families. No, this is for real life, so-called. This is for life on this earth. Colossians 4 verse 5. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of time. 
Paul's not assuming here that to be heavenly minded means you're going to escape the world and have nothing to do with people who aren't Christians. He's assuming that being heavenly minded will actually help us know how to engage people who are not yet Christians. Do you see? This is not escapism. If that's your view of holiness, then your view of holiness is not biblical. Holy people live in the world, are different from the world, for the benefit of the world. Holy people have their minds set on Christ and seek the things above, and that's what makes them useful to the world. It's this combination of seeking and setting that is the true secret of the full life in Christ. These are the two critical disciplines for for living as people who died with Christ, were raised with Christ, are now hidden with Christ in God, and for whom Christ is their life. And people who live this way as we close anticipate one ultimate hope in the future. It's right there in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Right now, beloved, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. But when Christ, notice, appears or comes again, then what was hidden in him appears also, namely you and me. What we are really becoming and what we really will be for all eternity will be unveiled on that day. I I love to watch HGTV. Speaking of distraction (laughs) and my wife and I love those sort of those home shows like what's Chip and Joanna Gates? Fixer Upper and shows like that with the big reveal. You know, my only problem with those shows is they take too long to get to the reveal. Y'all know y'all done done it. You got all the tape. Just get to the reveal, right? But, but I love it. Chip and Joanna say, bring the couple out to the house, and they stand them in front of the house, and they got these big screens in front of the house. There's a picture of what the house used to look like. And, and Chip and Joanna go to the ends of the screens, and, and they say, you ready to see your new house? And the couple, they're standing there shaking, and, you know, the, the lady like this, you know, and, and, and it's like, get ready. And they pull the screens back, and, and as the screen pulls back, there then, right in their vision, is the new house redesigned. Christ is coming for the big reveal. He's going to pull back the curtains and we will be seen for what he has remade us to be. The text says here, we will be with him in his glory. Those are not throwaway lines. The glory that Christ has, he is going to share with the people who are in him. It will be his glory, but it will reflect upon us and, and redound in us and be multiplied in our faces. We, we will share with him the splendor, the, the brightness, the brilliance, the, the, the intense beauty that is his. John says this in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when we see him, when he appears, we shall be like him. And this is the marvelous thing in John. John says there, we're going to be like him because we shall see him as he is. We're going to behold Jesus and become like Jesus. Paul says in Philippians 3 verses 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly or earthly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Christ the savior is coming from heaven and he's coming to get his citizens who are living in this foreign country. And when he comes now, he's going to come with the power of that country. And with the power of that country, he's going to transform us from these lowly bodies into these glorious heavenly bodies so that we might be able to live in that country with him forever. This is our hope. 
John says in verse 3 of 1 John 3, everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself. Do you see the connection? I think John and Paul are thinking the same things in Colossians and 1 John 3. That if our hope is in heaven, we will want to break the yoke of every earthly slavery. If our hope is in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will want to escape everything that distracts us from that coming. We will ready ourselves for the coming of the bridegroom. And we will dress ourselves as his bride. His coming is our hope. That hope frees us from this world. That freedom from this world allows us to delight ourselves in him. My friend, if you're here this morning and not yet a Christian, we're offering you all of Jesus from his perfect life in obedience to the Father, which you and I never did, never can do, to his death on the cross where he pays the penalty for sin, which you and I could never survive, to his resurrection to prove that God had accepted his sacrifice, a resurrection that we desperately need, to his ascension into heaven at the right hand of the Father and his coming again to transform people into into his glory. This is what we offer you when we ask you to come follow Jesus. We offer you all that Jesus is and all that he will be as if it was yours. Indeed, it will be yours. For if you repent of your sin and believe in Christ, you will be joined to Christ, hidden in him, and he will become your life. This is eternal life. Christ is alive and will never die. If he is your life, you will live and never die. It's why he came that you might have that with him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, what we would call you to do, what the Bible calls you to do, what God expects of you, is that you would confess your sins to God, that you would repent of your sins, and that you would trust in Jesus as your God and your Savior and follow him in that faith. Heaven will be your home. Christ will be your life. We will be your family. Trust in Christ and follow him. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how we praise you for your plan of salvation. For this indescribable scheme that you would take your son, send him for sinners, rescue them from hell, make them new creations, join them to Christ, hide them in yourself, and keep them for eternity. (laughs) How shall anyone escape if they neglect so great a salvation? How shall anyone be lost if they trust so great a Savior? So Lord, we pray even now that you would grant repentance and faith to those who don't have it. Give them that gift, we pray, that they might believe on Christ and follow him in the obedience that comes from faith. And we pray for this church and all of your churches that we might somehow, by your grace, be able to sort of deeply hold on to these four facts that we have died with Christ and been raised with Christ, that we are hidden in Christ and that Christ is our life. And Lord, those things being true, help us to seek the things above and set our minds on him. That we might be transformed and that we might be free and that Christ might be our joy and that we might be useful for your kingdom on earth. Help us, O Lord, to be a church marked by this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.